electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Coming off the 47th record high for the S&P this year, futures are steady as we get one last dose of earnings from Disney, Airbnb, and DoorDash. Look out for that uh, for signs that the Delta variant uh, caseload may be peaking in some key states. Our roadmap begins with uh, Disney uh, delighting as the company's big bet on streaming appears to be paying off. Plus, Delta derail. Facebook announces it's pushing reopening its offices until until 2022, while the FDA approves COVID vaccine booster shots for certain groups. We've got the latest. And shares of Virgin Galactic falling again today. Sir Richard Branson dumping another huge stake, his third since taking it public a couple years ago now. Uh, Disney's definitely going to be the lead this morning as 80 cents uh, crushes 55 cents on a pretty good tax gain. Uh, revenue ahead up 45. And then all to the discussion after last night, guys, about Disney Plus at 116 million subs. Street was looking for 113 million, although uh, more layered discussion about ARPU and ESPN Plus. Exactly. Yeah. So ARPU actually declined totally for Disney Plus streaming. It's much more skewed toward overseas uh, lower cost subs. And I think that's a that's going to be an issue at some point, although I do think expectations for the quarter had moderated along with the stock. So it did seem as if after Netflix, uh, we were wondering if, in fact, it was going to be a general softening. That's why I think the upside surprise What's like 175 million total streaming subs, right? If you add, add Hulu and, uh, and ESPN Plus. So, you know, it's not that far behind Netflix. ARPU about half of Netflix, though, globally. So I think that's going to be the the real chatter about what do you pay for Disney, which still has this very stout valuation relative to its history? I just think it gets this enormous amount of investor credit for having made itself indispensable again, right? In the ESPN days, it was indispensable. You couldn't escape. Exactly. But even, even along the way, ESPN days, you couldn't get away from it. The whole franchise model of princesses and Marvel and everything, Star Wars, that was, that was inescapable. And now I think there's reassurance that it's pretty much like you say, Morgan, it's in every family home. Yeah. Or m- mostly. I mean, it, it, any day of the week, you ask my daughter what princess she wants to be when she grows up, it's a different one, and they're all Disney-related. That being said, you've also got this parks division, which did return to profitability. I realize that maybe there's some question marks about what Delta's going to look like, which we heard from pretty much all the companies that reported after the bell yesterday about, you know, Delta impact. But, but that being said, that certainly... Uh, kind of ticked the box as well and speaks to the value proposition, I think, for Disney as well, because streaming might not be profitable, but they have all these other levers to pull, uh, which Netflix doesn't. Yeah, uh, a lot of reaction from the street today. Goldman goes to 218 uh, from 215. Morgan Stanley re- reiterates a buy. I think they're at 210. Uh, Chapek last night did talk a bit about the degree to which Disney is getting a uh, more firm picture of exactly what pricing looks like in the streaming business. Here's what he said. Our churn rate is down, our retention rate is up, and we're still adding subs. 
So it's a perfect uh, indication of what that price value uh, relationship is for the guest. And uh, I think uh, it gives us more fuel for the future. That's going to be key. Uh, is figuring out what people are willing to pay yeah. and then how, how it's going to work on the premium uh, fees. And we're going to talk about ScarJo in a second. Oh, I was just going there. <laughs> well, I mean, that was the story for Net- around Netflix for a long time, right? The perception it was an underpriced product. They had pricing power and Netflix waited and waited and waited. And then they pulled that lever. And Disney, I, you know, remember when the initial uh, massive rally related to streaming kicked off on that investor day is when they set the price point. Everyone was like, this is too low, but it's going to have massive rampant subs. So I think that the stock already presumes that this goes up over time. And that's going to be maybe the debate as to whether how fast and whether they can make that hold traction and keep churn low as they try that. The other piece of the puzzle, not necessarily subscribers, but it does, you know, speak to the media situation and specifically ESPN is the fact that they did see higher advertising revenue because of the return of live sports programming, but also said higher sports programming costs tied to COVID as well. So that'll be, I think, a key piece to watch. But now we do have to talk about Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, he didn't mention her by name, uh, really, but he did say that uh, they figured out ways over time to fairly compensate our talent and that over hundreds of deals with talent, uh, most, in his words, have gone by, for, for most part, very smoothly. Yeah. Didn't seem to add a lot of uh, pictures to how they're going to handle this particular dispute. Which I think speaks to the fact that it is, a, there, there are unique aspects to it because it was this transitional period, right? That the project was conceived and executed onto one premise that it was going to be a big box office. Now, going ahead, you know in advance, presumably for every new project, how this is going to go and how you're going to pay people. Uh, so that's why I think the investors don't see it as some kind of big potential cost liability that sits out there somewhere. But it is, you know, look, I mean, the companies are also foregoing arguably a lot of box office revenue. And they, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's something you have to come to terms with as well. It's the Netflix problem. What, how do you get a return on your investment of, uh, on content in this in a very precise way? You don't know. Yeah, which I think also speaks to the fact that different companies are striking different type of deals. Look no further than Warner last week in the 45 window, day window that was put in place with some of that content, too. Um, Things are shaking out. And I'll be honest, maybe not as messy, not nearly as messy. But in some ways, we've seen a very similar playbook here in the music industry back in the early aughts uh, and and through the years up until pretty much recently as we're starting to see things stabilize around streaming revenues. But it changed the business model. It changed the compensation model for producers and artists in that industry. And there's a lot of room and flexibility for creativity for some of those new deals where actors and and TV and news and movie producers are concerned, too. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, especially on the agency side. Yeah, uh, music, of course, had live performances That's true. and merch That's true. To, to fall back on. It's, I'd be curious to see what actors uh, feel that is, is their uh, lever on that point. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's not all universal praise for Disney. Yeah. Needham today. Laura Martin's been, uh, had, had more of a skeptical view sure. for a while. She maintains her hold. Uh, estimates are too high owing to near-term investment, indirect to consumer. Um, and then, of course, the worry that uh, COVID is going to yeah. create some more restrictions at right. least in the, where, the, where the parks and cruises are located. Yeah, because if you look at, at Disney at, what, 22 times, you know, enterprise value to cash flow, if you want to look at it that way, because they do have a ton of debt still after the Fox deal. 
Uh, that's very, very expensive relative to what it's traded for in the past. Now, if you say streaming is break even right now, it's really an investment story. You get a Netflix type multiple per sub or half of that. And then, you know, you have to back into it that way. But I do think those are the concerns because it really is getting credit for being both a shutdown and a reopening story, right? You have both those elements in there, so you can find reasons to like it. I do think it all settles around the, the, the valuation and what's embedded in it right now based on pacing of, uh, of reopening. Yeah. Right. Uh, speaking of which, uh, the FDA has authorized COVID vaccine boosters for people with weakened immune systems. As expected, that action came late last night. Immunocompromised people will be able to receive a third dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb weighed in on that earlier this morning on Squawk Box. Here's what he said. This could become an annual um, inoculation, much like the flu shot. It's unclear right now. You know, it could be the case that once you receive a third booster, patients are going to derive a more durable immunity, or certainly people who are in immunocompromised will derive a more durable response. That doesn't mean that they're going to be protected in perpetuity. They might need a subsequent booster from time to time, but it might not be every year. It might be every other year. And so many headlines uh, this morning swirling around uh, the vaccine front. Uh, New Orleans and San Francisco instituting all kinds of restrictions or requirements for either testing or vaccines if you go into businesses. Um, Indiana University, of course, SCOTUS upheld their ability to require students to get vaccine, uh, vaccinated. And LSU this morning tweets, once we get approval, you can expect a mandate if you want to come back to LSU. It's, you know, so, so here's what I, I don't hear getting discussed a lot about this. You have these mandates going to, to place in the private sector, at universities and, and the like. When a unionized workforce is involved, and these are based on some of the conversations I've had with executives, for example, uh, on background and off the record in recent days, when a unionized workforce is involved, it's a very different conversation. And you're seeing that play out too, right? So it's part of why some companies maybe are implementing those mandates and some companies are making strong suggestions or doing mandates alongside testing is it kind of speaks to the heft of the employee base and how much leverage each, each side has as well. Sure. And well, also in a world of, of scarce labor, you know, I mean, if you're an airline and you're already having a hard time making sure you have staffing for all your flights, you don't want to create another impediment if you don't have to. And uh, what is interesting, though, is just if you step back from it, it, it explains in part, I think, why the market is kind of OK with where we are on this, because it just seems as if, you know, across the board, society's trying to get ahead of it. We've, we've kind of been through it. Um, you know, and as much as there is maybe frustration in, in some circles around vaccine resistance, you're doing half a million, you know, or more a day. It's not like, you know, nobody's getting unvaccinated, right? <laughs> so yeah. I do think in theory it's like incremental progress. We're sure. going to become a little more yeah. inured to it. Right. It does remind me, too, of what J.P. Morgan said yesterday. Strong signs. The U.S. is starting to turn the corner in the Delta variant infections. Uh, the rate of transfer uh, now declining in 40 of 50 states um, and actual caseloads declining in states like Missouri and Utah, Alaska, makes us believe that the U.S. inflection is days away and that bond yields and cyclicals bottomed last week. That's Kalanovic. Mm. And we heard something similar from Tom Lee earlier this week as well, I believe, on Tech Check. Um, but this has been part of the discussion, right, with the markets and the S&P and the Dow inching yes. ever more to ever more record highs this week, albeit at very narrow trading ranges. And the po process has been what's been priced in and whether the peak to Delta, at least here in the U.S., has been priced in. The other one I would just flag, and, and I bring this up because we had Oppenheimer's analyst, biotech on, analyst on yesterday to talk about Moderna, which has obviously had a wild week as well. And he said that the name he's watching very closely is Regeneron. 
as one of those next stocks that could potentially take off depending on what happens with its COVID-19 treatment. Today, you see Regeneron uh, trending on Twitter, and that's because in Florida, Governor DeSantis has said that he's setting a plan for Regeneron antibodies, uh, a rapid response initiative for early COVID treatment in that state as well. Those shares are up a little bit pre-market right now, about half a percent, but another need to keep an eye on, perhaps even more so in the COVID treatment landscape. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. In terms of how the street is approaching it, it seems very familiar to, look, we saw this went last year. Before we even had any, any vaccine and the market wanted to go higher, I think there's been a real rush to say get back into cyclicals. That might mean like people are over-anticipating it a little bit, but, you know, it just seems like that's the, that's the kind of comfortable feeling call to make right now because they have had that pullback. We also had to start the week. It's been a long, busy summer week. We also had that infrastructure deal that went through the Senate at the start of this week, too, and all those names yeah. rally, too. All right, when we return, U.S. Chamber of Commerce CEO Suzanne Clark, we're going to get her take on the infrastructure bill, labor shortages, and so much more. I'm just taking a quick look at futures right now with about 18 minutes until the opening bell. Everything is indicated to open higher. The S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ in what is poised to be an up week for all the major averages. More Squawk in the Streets from the New York Stock Exchange. Straight ahead. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The Senate, as you know, passing that $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill now goes to the House, where it may face some challenges in getting approved. Joining us this morning in a CNBC exclusive is Suzanne Clark, CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Suzanne, always good to chat with you. Happy Friday. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. I wonder if you were surprised at um, the nature of which this, this bill, or the, at least the final word in the Senate, was so bipartisan. Were you impressed with the degree of bipartisan support? Absolutely. I mean, 69 votes in this environment is, is a real win and a real testament to the negotiators who produced a real thoughtful debate, asked a bunch of smart questions, and then were able to get something done, proving to Americans that they can get something done in a bipartisan way. And we're thrilled with the outcome. This is going to do a lot for our economy, for economic growth, for American competitiveness. And now we want to see the House get it to the president's desk. Right. Do you agree with the view that it is going to be tougher sledding? 
No, I, I, listen, I've been optimistic about getting this done from the beginning. I remain optimistic. This is important. It's important to districts. You know, one kind of underreported fact has been what this does for clean water. It literally gets the lead out of pipes in 10 million homes and 400,000 schools and child care centers. I don't believe any House member is going to go back to their district and say they voted against that. All right. Well, it, it, is, it obviously is running into some friction in terms of uh, the, the view that, that spending is going to be inflationary. As Manchin uh, said uh, earlier in the week, the level of spending we're looking at is something that would be more appropriate for a Great Depression or a Great Recession. How do we get past that view? Look, I think it's really important that we separate out this really crucial infrastructure bill that does a lot of good work for Americans in America without raising taxes from this $3.5 trillion tax and spending spree that they're calling reconciliation. These are different things. If we want to really worry about inflation in this country, then we got to fight this $3.5 trillion bill. This is nothing but a record tax increase on employers and investors. This is a takeover of our healthcare system. This is a real threat to our recovery and to our future prosperity. And so if we're going to worry about inflation and worry about spending, we have to put together the biggest coalition businesses ever put together and defeat that $3.5 trillion proposal. Suzanne, just to dig into that a little bit more, I mean, how worried are you about inflation? I mean, in terms of some of the price increases we've seen across quite a number of different industries and products, it's pretty eye-popping right now. And certainly it hurts companies. It also hurts the middle class, which, uh, you know, we know all this policy is, for better or worse, is supposed to be addressing right now. Um, but is it transitory? How much of it is transitory? And to your point, $3.5 trillion spread out over the next handful of years, how much would that add to the situation? It's exactly the right question, right? So what we're seeing now, we hope, could be transitory. We think the Fed has done a good job in a really hard situation. But this type of tax and spend bill could make that type of inflation permanent. And when you think about what we need to be doing as a country right now, this is exactly the wrong course to be taking. And I, and I would add one other thing if you think about price increases, and that's thinking about this worker shortage, right? Really getting Americans back to work, getting child care centers open, expanding access to child care, making sure schools stay open. Anything we can do to get workers back on the job will also help alleviate this price pressure. Yeah, I think there are a lot of working parents out there that would like to see the child care situation addressed. That being said, this $3.5 trillion bill, um, and I realize the devil's in the details, it, it has a big child care component. Are you behind that, or do you think it needs to be done differently? If so, how, how different? What would that have to look like? Again, I think this is one of the big questions that's facing America right now, which is how do we provide good, fair, uh, you know, affordable access to child care. But we do believe there are a lot of ways that you can get this done without spending three and a half trillion dollars. You know, Washington starts throwing around these trillion dollar proposals as if it's confetti. That's a really big number. Going back to your specific question on child care. I hate to relate it back to this, but one thing we really need to see is these vaccine numbers go up because we know with children not able to get vaccinated, parents are afraid to even access the childcare options that are available to them now. So, you know, watching how all of these topics relate, whether it's prices to worker shortage to the vaccines, make it really important that we stay focused on real solutions that get us out of the pandemic, that help with the economic recovery and don't experiment 
with one of the biggest, most radical pieces of expense, you know, tax and spend legislation that we've ever seen. Not the time for that. Suzanne, uh, a lot of the chamber's commentary about the labor shortage uh, includes a mention about uh, easier paths to legal immigration as a way to solve that problem. Um, I wonder how much of that is actively getting discussed on the Hill because it has been a fraught discussion for years. Uh, but maybe there's a point at which businesses say, you know what, this is we're, we're looking for any solution and we're going to look past some of the cultural rifts in this country. Look, I mean, this week's numbers, what was it, 10.1 or something million open jobs? That's almost a million more than when I was on the show a month ago. That's a real number. We know some of that is transitory and it's due to the pandemic, but some of it existed before the pandemic. That has to do with a need in this country for better skills training so that we can really get people who want to work into the open jobs that are available. But it also certainly means increasing legal, legal immigration. And look, we've been heartened to see some conversations on the Hill, uh, some bipartisan efforts to come together on border security, on legal immigration, uh, on having pathways to both things that I think allow bipartisan compromise. Suzanne, something that I suspect... Uh Many of the businesses that you represent are are watching very closely right now is what the future is going to look like for M&A and deal making uh, in this country, given the fact that we've gotten some pretty strong, pretty hawkish uh, comments from the new chair of the FTC, Lena Khan. I mean, just yesterday, shares of Aerojet Rocketdyne and Lockheed Martin sold off because of uh, expectation in the market now that that deal could could be um, in jeopardy. How are companies approaching this topic, given the fact that this is an administration that's taking a very strong, very, I guess, aggressive tact towards consolidation. You know, it's so interesting as as a viewer of your show, right? We've all been watching this hot M&A activity all year and capital looking for a home and, and, and watching some big deals come together that I think have been important, important for the economy. We're talking about infrastructure and the deals that are available in that space, and they're important. I hear from business leaders every day who are very concerned about this executive order on competition, this concept that our economy is stagnant, that we need the government to step in and help uh, assure a level playing field. It's just not what we're seeing every day with new business starts, with new business ideas, with real competition in the market. And so this idea that we need the government to come in and look at 72 different industries to enable agencies to look backwards and forwards at deals is just a massive overreach and something the U.S. Chamber will be fighting strongly. Uh, A lot of things on your plate, Suzanne, and we love uh, having you come in and helping us understand uh, where the chamber sits on many of them. Good to see you. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much. Happy Friday. All right. Taking a look at the futures as we count down to the opening bell. Very modest moves, but uh, tilted to the upside. Dow indicated up 63 points. Disney's uh, pre-market pop good for at least 50 of that. And S&P 500 looking to add to its record highs up a net uh, four at this point. Uh, Nasdaq just green. More squawk on the street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Take a look at some of the pre-market gainers here. Disney's going to lead the charge. Moderna trying to get back above 400 after uh, what's been a pretty eventful week. S&P only needs about uh, 14 points or so to officially double the March 2020 low. Got to get to 44.74. Opening bells in four minutes. Welcome back. Get the opening bell here in about a minute time. Uh, minutes time. Interesting week as we've wound our way through the infrastructure story, the Delta variant story, the inflation story this week. Uh, VIX below 16. Yeah. And value is going to outperform for the week, Mike, to yeah, your given point. Relatively minimal intraday moves. It makes sense at all time highs for VIX to be kind of compressed right here. Volumes are down. But, yeah, there has been a little more traction in the value and cyclical side of the markets yesterday. Not so much. Up about half a percent on the week, even though we've been up three or four days. So it shows you it slowed the pace. But there's a, a kind of a relentless bid underneath the market, it seems, still. Yeah. Cashin's out this morning. He says, I do remain frustrated, though, by the narrow ranges. They're not consistent with what we old fogies like to see. Uh, narrow range trading, traditionally associated with indecision, that suggests maybe a topping process. Yeah, it's just certainly not inconsistent with that possibility. Um, you know, there's also the don't short a dull market kind of principle, which I think has been at play for a while. It's not been about momentum. It's not been about storylines or headlines. It's been about reluctance to sell. People are willing to allow their equity exposures to go up just because of the big picture, you know, loose financial conditions, FOMO. You're sitting on house money uh, because you're up, you know, 18 and a half percent year to date in the S&P. Doubling since March of last year. Uh, There's the opening bell, by the way, at the big board. It's a World Quantum Growth Acquisition Corp. Celebrating an IPO at the Nasdaq. It's Hellbiz, a provider of electric scooters, bicycles and mopeds. Celebrating a listing via SPAC. We haven't done Airbnb yet, uh, Morgan. Uh, The numbers were good, although they're their qualitative guidance on Q3 points to some of these delta patterns. Yeah, and that's why you've seen the shares trading lower. I believe they were lower. There they are. They're down about 3% uh, still right now. And that's despite the fact that the current quarter, they are still projecting for record revenue. But again, it speaks to the fact that there are uncertainties around this delta variant. It's something we've been parsing through all week, whether it was the Southwest warning earlier this week or even Disney, despite really magic numbers for the Magic Kingdom. Um, you know, what all of this continues to look like throughout this quarter. And I think it also gets back to the bigger, broader conversation, which is, was Q2 peak earnings? Was it also peak economic growth trajectory? And how does that continue to take shape and evolve over the coming months now? Yeah, I mean, I I do think that uh, both Airbnb and DoorDash suffered to some degree from very aggressive initial valuations. When they first print, I mean, they're basically flat since the first trade after their IPOs. They've had the pop and then they're flat. Um, You know, there hasn't actually been a huge winner on these sharing economy, gig economy, consumer app, even the killer apps 
whether it's Uber, Lyft, uh, or these guys. So in other words, they have scale. There's to some degree a modern e-commerce utility of some sort. Mm-hmm. They, they're kind of necessary, and everyone loves them, and they're growing on a user basis. But the business model isn't following through, and people are not clear about how, how that really shapes up over time. Yeah, and profitability continues to be sort of the overhang here, too, yeah. right? Whether you're talking about DoorDash or you are talking about Airbnb, which I realize... Uh, you know, posted adjusted EBITDA, positive adjusted EBITDA, but um, has not yet had a profitable year. We're talking about these big, basically um, society-changing, disruptive companies, but what does that ultimate path to profitability look like? I mean, we could talk about adjusted EBITDA, but some of those other metrics, not there yet. When do we get there? Yeah, one of the things that you adjust for and add back in adjusted EBITDA is stock-based compensation. And it's one of the things that Airbnb and all the rest of them just really have as a, a headwind uh, in terms of just all the equity that continues to go out, invest. And, uh, you know, that's not a killer because Snap was in that situation early on, and that's been a great performer ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think, you know, that's one of those things that uh, as a very large initial market cap public company, you know, exactly. it's something that, that, that sort of weighs on it. Uh, one of the more interesting trades of the week has been the weakness in semis. It's been a couple of nights now since Morgan Stanley uh, downgraded Micron and called for a uh, cyclical downturn beginning in Q1 of next year. Sees the market oversupplied for most of 22, at least on, on memory. Uh, yeah. We talked with Kramer about it yesterday, who I don't think had real issues with the overall macro call. Right. Uh, we'll see how much stabilization I, I we get I think a lot of it is, I mean, within semis, there's been massive differentiation in terms of performance, in terms of whatever. So, I mean, you know, NVIDIA is just the monster of the group. It's still performing. It's not necessarily in the areas people are worried about at the moment. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think as a uh, general market tell, you know, I think it's a little bit ambiguous what it's telling you right now because it was a leadership group for a while. It was going sideways for months, kind of broke higher, and now you're slipping back below where it broke from. And I think that's going to be get a little bit of focus if that deepens because it's, it's, it removes one of those, you know, kind of props of the overall story and saying, hey, you don't want to be negative on a market when semis are making new highs. Well, they're not making new highs right now. Yeah, speaking of, you know, it's, it is one of those other cyclical groups of stocks to, to that point. Um, speaking of cyclical groups that tend to be very tied to the economy, <laughs> um, let's talk about the rails because it's been a fiery week. In terms of the M&A back and forth and the non-bidding war, bidding war, where Kansas City Southern is concerned as well. Kansas City Southern is a little bit higher again today. I mean, the stock's up 7.5, almost 8% week to date. This, of course, after Canadian Pacific swooped back in with an upped offer, not as high as rival Canadian National uh, for Kansas City Southern, but higher than its own previous bid a a couple months ago. Um, Basically pitching to investors and shareholders of Kansas City Southern ahead of the expected Kansas City Southern meeting next Thursday um, that, hey, listen, we offer certainty um, because they've already gotten that green light from the rail regulators here in the U.S., the STB, to be able to create a trust for a merger process to happen, which is expected to be a very long process no matter who actually ends up taking over Kansas City Southern, if either does. Um, That being said, last night, it continued to unfold. You had Kansas City Southern coming out the board unanimously determining that that proposal from CP did not, quote, constitute a superior proposal to its agreement with Canadian National. That being said, it did say if they don't get um, a, an answer from the STB before their meeting next Thursday on whether Canadian National can create one of these trust structures, which are so key to this deal being able to move forward, that they will... 
um, not hold that meeting and they will wait until after the STB decision, which analysts will tell you is a part of why CP put that bid out this week when it did on the heels of proxy season um, to basically help postpone um, that decision and that vote. Now, it's interesting. CP basically said they applaud the Kansas City Board of Directors' decision to delay the stockholder vote. We continue to believe that CN's proposed use of a voting trust should not be approved because it is anti-competitive and not in the public interest. CN basically saying that they support the decision uh, to adjourn that special meeting of stockholders. They continue to be confident that their joint voting trust meets all the standards in the public interest test set forth by the STB. They believe that it should be approved. So this will continue to play out. It's kind of like a slow-moving train. Yeah. Um, in terms of we just got to see what what happens through the rest of this month. But it is kind of key to an industry that's already seen massive amounts of consolidation over the last several decades. Kansas City Southern is really kind of the last of the class one railroads that could potentially be taken out. And it comes, we were just talking about this earlier in the show, it comes in the midst of uh, an FTC that is much more critical in a Biden administration uh, with the executive order that was released last month that is much more critical uh, of consolidation in general and has pointed specifically to areas like the railroads as a place where competition needs to be encouraged. So we'll yeah. continue to watch it. Yeah. And now, and you know, with, with so much focus now on inflation as a political uh, issue. Absolutely. And, you know, you're able to kind of point a finger Great and say, reasons. we don't want to do this. And and meanwhile, I mean, just bigger picture, you're now seeing a little more of a return of the shipping snags globally. Uh, it's not really just specifically for rails, but yeah, it's it seems like a really interesting kind of M&A uh, mechanics and regulatory interplay going on in a crucial industry. Yeah. Uh, Morgan Stanley, or actually, it's, it's BAML this morning, has a remarkable statistic, which Morgan won't be surprised by. But if you're shipping a 40-foot container from Shanghai to L.A. 18 months ago, cost you two grand. It's now 10 grand. Yeah. And that's one thing that's going to be hard to correct uh, short of repatriating all kinds of supply chains back to this country, which will literally take years. And, of course, what we know right now is that with this Delta variant, you're seeing some of those key ports, busiest ports in China, basically being shut down or at least curtailed to a certain extent because of this latest flare-up of the pandemic. So that's only going to continue to contribute to the woes, at least in the near term. But, of course, that's really crucial because we are coming into the holiday season, and a lot of the goods that move on those types of containers are the goods that people are going to be going to retail outlets and everywhere else uh, to buy coming into back-to-school and then holiday season. So what is all of that pricing going to look like? And which of the companies that are affected by this are going to be able to push that out to consumers? Right. Uh, it's going to be important to watch for, for holiday season, which inventory build is happening as we speak. Um, Virgin Galactic, a couple of downgrades, obviously, in the past week or two. Uh, now reports of another sale by Branson. I know, Morgan, you got more on this. I do this is, have- by the way, a three-month low, I think. Yeah, it, it has been it has been a very rocky week, and what and actually really just been a rocky go of it for the stock in general since Sir Richard Branson carried out his spaceflight uh, last month. Um, perhaps not surprising, uh, given the fact that to your point, we had earnings where they pushed back the launch of their commercial service until Q3 at the earliest next year. Um, you saw that stock offering as well. And now today you have a filing. It was filed last night that Virgin Investments, so Virgin Group, this is Branson, um, that they are selling another 10.4 million shares, or they did this week, between the 10th and the 12th um, of Virgin Galactic, raising about $300 million. I just want to bring up, I have so many papers here, viewers. Like if you, I'm like, I'm like, 
the crazy professor. Um, but anyway, uh, also bringing up that um, I got a statement from the company as well on this, saying this is not any kind of change uh, in Branson's own um, in Branson's own stance on spaceflight or on Virgin Galactic, but that, quote, Virgin intends to use those net proceeds from the sale to support its portfolio of global leisure, holiday, and travel businesses that continue to be affected by the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, in addition to supporting the development and growth of new and existing businesses that the Virgin Group continues to be the largest single shareholder in Virgin Galactic. So the sale represented just a little under a fifth of their current or up until a couple days ago, their current holdings. Um, and I think at least it, right now in the near term, it, it just adds to what is bearish sentiment, um, given the fact that there don't yeah. seem to be a lot of near-term catalysts for this name. And we have seen a lot of insider selling. But it goes back to more broadly with Virgin Group. We're talking about airlines. We're talking about cruises, leisure, hospitality, some of these other areas that continue to need support because we're not out of this pandemic yet. It does show that the, the difference in the finances of the billionaire space entrepreneurs or whatever you want to call them, right? Um, you know, Bezos sold stock constantly, didn't yes. matter because it was such a mega market cap and he still owned a ton. He funds uh, Blue Origin. And then, you know, Musk, you know, was barred against his Tesla holdings, he doesn't sell them, bars against them, and he gets new investors for he SpaceX. He doesn't sell Tesla or SpaceX. Exactly. Exactly. So finds a way, whereas Virgin, you know, obviously they're maybe working a little tighter. Uh, in terms of how they can finance all the different operations. That's right. And, of course, it's not the only space news that we get today um, because Boeing is very much in focus right now, too. Um, we're going to be getting a press conference from Boeing and NASA a little bit later today at 1 p.m. Eastern because of that Starliner capsule that does compete or will in the future hopefully one day compete against SpaceX to bring NASA, uh, astronauts for NASA to the International Space Station. There were some issues with that capsule. It was supposed to launch the end of last month. Uh, we're supposed to get an update now, but the window for them to be able to launch and launch soon is closing. It is looking increasingly likely that that Starliner won't get off the pad until perhaps months from now. Um, does it have a material effect on, on Boeing as a company? Not necessarily, but it is another black eye for the company. Um, and it's another one to keep an eye on. It's going to be Aerojet Rocketdyne, which is the maker of the propulsion system that is the current source of issue for yeah. Starliner. A lot of questions uh, regarding Boeing, both on uh, space and commercial uh, aircraft, as we continue to look for max approvals around the world. Uh, Dow's up 90, got record highs on both the Dow and the S&P. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Morning, Bob. Hi, Carl. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. New highs, but more importantly, we are halfway through the third quarter. That's right. Believe it or not, halfway through. Uh, and the important thing, the two main narratives remain in place. That is, the Delta variant is slowing but not derailing the recovery. And interest rates have bottomed, or at least the market believes that. Take a look at sectors right now here. Kind of a flattish open, about even on the advanced decline line. Communication services strong. That's because Disney had that great report. Uh, they're up nicely of almost 4%. Tech's holding in there despite slightly higher interest rates. That's the big story. I'll show you that in a moment. Banks have been doing great as interest rates have moved up. Flattish today, as you can see. Energy is the big disappointment uh, this quarter, down about uh, 8%. So we are anti-lockdown and we are uh, anti-low uh, rates at this point. You can see the market. I want to show you the industrials uh, and big material names because uh, for the quarter, halfway through the quarter, six weeks in, they're holding up really well. So uh, Nucor, Dover, Martin Marietta, so some of the uh, uh, the the, uh, the crushed stone companies doing really well, uh, Deer doing really well. This is, again, the last six weeks. 
Also, rates have been rising. So you see, uh, ever since the jobs report, the banks have been doing much better. We've been talking about Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs uh, sitting uh, 52-week highs. Uh, NASDAQ's been doing really well. T. Rowe Price also been doing well. Uh, consumer stocks are split. We've got that small group of super sellers. That's what I call them, Target, Costco, and Walmart. Uh, they've been fantastic in the last few weeks. No decline there. Uh, and we've also seen uh, consumer discretionary stocks doing really well. Why? Because the consumer is flush with cash from savings and from stimulus. Uh, so that remains strong. They're fixing up their homes, as you can see here. They're going out to restaurants. Uh, they're buying cosmetics. Uh, Ulta has been a really good uh, performer uh, as well. So broad consumer uh, spending is still pretty strong. Food, though, and other staple names are down. Uh, consumers are spending less uh, on food at home. So this is not surprising at all. This sort of makes a lot of sense. Uh, these stocks had big run-ups last year, uh, and in the last uh, several weeks, uh, they have been underperforming. The big wild card is tech everybody's trying to figure out. Now, remember, tech is very sensitive to higher rates. This happened in February when Tech got clobbered as interest rates moved up. So the good thing here is techs are sort of performing in line with the market. Mega cap fang names are generally outperforming uh, the market. Uh, semiconductors are underperforming slightly in the last few weeks. It's not causing a lot of concern. I think the important thing is what would happen if we go do 1.6, 1.7 on the 10-year? Uh, that may be a little bit of a bigger problem. But right now, tech's handling the slightly higher rates very well. The bottom line is the higher rates are helping the markets look through the Delta worries. Modestly higher rates are not hurting technology right now. That's the key. Finally, I just want to note what's going on in Europe. Very unusual situation. Europe is up 10 days in a row. And I watched the stocks 600. This is the S&P 500 uh, of Europe. It's the broadest index. 10 days? That just doesn't happen, folks. That's an historic high. Germany's at a new high. France is at a new high. Uh, and right now, the stock 600 is outperforming the S&P 500 this year, up 19%. This just does not happen very often, folks. It's been a long, dry spell for Europe. Let me just show you the stock 600 against the S&P 500. It's essentially, Europe has underperformed the United States really since the financial crisis uh, ended in 2009. There you can see the S&P 500. That's the orange line, the big outperformance. Uh, and I'm going to go back even further, you know, look, look back 15 years, and you can see that. So the important thing is Europe's up 100%. The S&P 500 in, in the last 10 years is up 270%. And guys, the important thing, Carl, is Europe's cheap. It's about 15 times forward earnings. The S&P is 20 times forward earnings. So on a relative valuation basis, it's a great call. Whether or not Europe is going to emerge quicker from this pandemic is not clear. But obviously, Carl, some people are betting that they will right now. Back to you. Yeah. Well, you look at the vaccination rates in Spain, Ireland, France, Italy, all higher than the U.S., Bob. That might have something to do with it. Uh, good point. Uh, Bob Bassani, thanks. Later this morning on Tech Check, don't miss DoorDash co-founder and CEO Tony Hsu. It's coming up at 11 a.m. Eastern time as the shares are back to about a one-and-a-half-week low. As we go to break, let's watch Treasuries and keep track of how uh, the bond uh, yields are doing ahead of consumer sentiment in about 15 minutes. Ten-year off a bit at 134 and the VIX 15 and a quarter back in a moment. Welcome back. FTC Chair Lena Khan saying antitrust enforcers should take a tougher stance on defense mergers. In response to a letter from Senator Elizabeth Warren regarding concerns about the Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocketdyne deal, for example, Khan saying divestitures often fall short and that as a result, quote, antitrust agencies should more frequently consider opposing problematic deals outright. 
Um, so perhaps not surprisingly, yesterday, guys, you did see shares, and they're under pressure again today. Shares of Aerojet Rocketdyne uh, fell on reports of this commentary from Khan yesterday. They're down another 1% right now. Lockheed uh, slightly lower on the day so far this morning, too. But it speaks to what we've been talking about all hour, which is an administration that's taking a much tougher stance in general on M&A. Um, you know, I've had some of the other deals that are kind of in the works right now flagged to me as well, whether it's the Cormark Performance Group um, deal that is looking to move forward and what the FTC is going to do with that, or, of course, the rails, some of the other things that are afoot. It's been a really robust year for M&A. So going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out as the FTC has come out and said that it is uh, overloaded and that uh, all because they don't necessarily issue a second request to companies that are looking to merge within the specific, you know, the 30-day window that I believe is required, or maybe it's 15 days, that um, basically merge at your own risk. Yeah. So we'll see. Something to watch. Fewer deals, maybe more buybacks, because companies are going to do something with, with a lot of the accumulated cash. We'll see if that happens. As we go to break, take a look at this week's uh, top performing sectors. We were just talking a moment ago about how value and cyclicals have outperformed a bit this week, at least. Materials and financials do lead the pack. Uh, Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Dow's up 78. We have, of course, been focusing quite a lot on the reopening trade, including airlines, cruise lines and hotels. Contessa Brewer joins us now with details about one travel related group that is getting a boost. Hi, Contessa. Hey there, Mike. Yeah, as travel demand has soared, so has demand for travel insurance. In part, it's because a slew of countries require it. And then we just heard from a couple cruise lines this week saying that ships leaving from Florida will also require non-vaccinated passengers to carry extra coverage. Squaremouth, an online travel insurance broker, says its sales were up 67 percent in July compared to 2019. And the biggest travel insurers, AIG and Allianz, well, on its second quarter earnings call, AIG said, look, premiums for travel insurance are moving higher. And then Allianz told us interest has risen 15 percent in those products. But get this, claims have risen 75 percent from pre-pandemic levels. That was a significant cost headwind for Allianz in 2020. The lesson for tourists in this pandemic is that stuff happens and travelers are now reading through that fine print. I specifically remember reading through it to make sure it would cover housing if we had to quarantine because of a positive test. It also covered, of course, evacuation if you were really sick and needed to medically transport. But I was more concerned with the cost of having to stay an extra 10 days during a quarantine. Ms. Sean is an accountant, so she's accustomed to looking at those details. But for everybody, it's worth reviewing your insurance documents. A cancel for any reason policy will cost you about 40% more than a basic policy. That's according to Square Mouth. But it means it could cover you know, as much as 70, 80% of your costs. And without it, you shoulder the whole thing. Carl? Uh, Contessa, uh, really good insight as uh, we keep our eye on that market. Uh, a lot of dislocations coming out of COVID, that's for sure. Our Contessa Brewer. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.